I'm Turk Pipkin. Have you heard the good news? I played Aaron Arkaway on The Sopranos, and you're listening to Pada Bing. I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. And if you like what we're doing, please spread the word or support the work by visiting glow.fm forward slash Pada Bing. If you'd like a pictorial and caption companion to the podcast, follow at Potabing on Instagram and DM us there if you'd like to participate in the trivia series. Finally, as always, thank you for listening and being part of this journey. Coming up is my conversation with Turk Pipkin. Turk played Aaron Arkaway on the show, one of the few that lived to tell about life with Janice. In addition to acting, Turk is an exceptionally accomplished writer and global humanitarian. Loved hearing his story, all the great work he's doing, and how a chance encounter with David Chase led to a comic role for the ages. Special thanks to Turk for coming through the studio during a quick business visit in town. He's a great guy, and I'm excited to share our conversation with you. So here it is, my conversation with Turk Pipkin. Turk, thanks for being here. My pleasure. And for going down memory lane with me today. First off, some history and context. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in, in West Texas, actually, in a little town, San Angelo, Texas, and not much. Uh, I'm old enough that there wasn't a whole lot of media to consume out there, and um, but I fell in love with movies early on and um, had a couple of movie theaters in town, and I spent a lot of time in them. So, And I was writing since I was, uh, since I was really pretty young, so I was, I was primed to be in the business. Draw a line from West Texas to North Jersey. What were you doing before The Sopranos, and how did The Sopranos happen? Well, the, you know, the brief line is somewhere along the way, I, I, I was a writer with no outlet for the writing, so I became a performer, but I also had no place to perform. It was even a little bit before the heyday of, you know, the comedy clubs at that point were still just kind of New York and L.A. So I became a street performer, along with my buddy Harry Anderson, uh, who passed away a year ago today, and uh, so we're celebrating Harry's life today. Um, Harry and I became producing and writing partners and worked with him all through the Cheers Night Court Days World Years, and we produced a bunch of specials together. Um, but I was I was writing film and television. I was doing a little bit of acting work, and um, I guess the end of that line is um, David Chase came to Austin, Texas, where I live, and um, to be honored by the Austin Film Festival, which is a great film festival that honors writers in Texas. And it was a time when I was hosting a lot of the events there and emceeing a lot of stuff, and so I. I uh, had a good bit of time with David over over a weekend, and this is in season three, really at the heyday. And uh, Was he I, being honored for The Sopranos? He was being honored for The Sopranos because it was the hottest thing on television, and I think they're probably the first, first time he was honored widely. And we talked about the show. I had recently been in Italy. And I'd lived in Italy in the 70s as a performer. I had traveled as a performer all through Italy and Europe, all through the 80s, uh, doing one-man theater shows. So I had a lot of connections in Italy. And I had recently been there writing a book about a guy um, who had a kind of a bad encounter with the Andrangheta, the Calabrian Mafia. So David and I, over lunch one day, started telling 
mob stories and not any that that he needed, but it was just fun to talk about them. And I remember saying, you meet, you meet some of these hit guy, hit men I know that want to come around the show now. You ever make you nervous? And I told him about meeting, a, you know, Aldo Moro's killers in La Stampa prison. And, you know, we're just trading mob stories. That was it. He went home. And uh, a couple of days later, the casting called and said, hey, we're the casting agents for The Sopranos. And this was at a time when like a one-line bit part would have 5,000 people lining up. Sure. We, David wanted to know if you'd ever done any acting. And would you consider reading for a part and s- sending in a videotape audition? So, so y- you didn't discuss that face-to-face? This no. This was something that no, just happened after the Totally fact. out of the blue. And I was like, oh, well, I'm pretty busy. I, you know, I don't know if I, I could probably get to an audition. You know, they, well, we need it kind of quickly. Oh, well, send me the script, you know, and I'll, I'll get to it when I can. So about an hour later, I, I FedExed a video back to them. A buddy of mine who's an actor came over and read the other, other side of that opening scene from He Has Risen. Uh, and... Um, the next morning, I mean, I got a call back uh, the next morning saying, I'm going to walk this over to, we thought this was really funny, I'm going to walk it over to the set and let the producers watch it. And that afternoon, I got a call and said, can you be in New York on Monday? Huh. How's that for fast? That's amazing. Yeah. Um, you must have been wondering, too, initially, because you're, you're not Italian. Oh, well, and, and I had long hair. Yeah. You know, here's Aaron Arkaway. I mean, for, the, for those, I'm sure you've probably covered that, but here's Aaron Arkaway, a, not, a, you know, not distinctive enough that he's a born-again Christian, but also that he's an narcoleptic and uh, falls asleep or wakes up in every scene. And it is pretty much comedy gold, you know. And Totally. So uh, I, it, it would be hard to go wrong, but I, I had other advantages with it anyway. And, and you know, the fact that I'm kind of tall and goofy looking didn't hurt. So. And it was always Aaron Arkaway. There were no other potential characters or anything else you read for or auditioned for? That was it. It's an amazing story. Yeah. So how many days or how much time did you spend with him in Austin before he left? Uh, that was a weekend. It was a weekend. Yeah. Amazing. Well, and you were a moderator? Or a- I was a moderator. I think, I, if I remember, I think we showed a couple of episodes one night, and I introduced those, and we uh, honored, the festival honored David with their screenwriter, their television writers and, and film writers award at, at the big awards luncheon, and I was the MC of that. And is so, that festival now part of South by Southwest? No, or are they it, totally it's a different? festival. It's, in, it's the South by Southwest Film Festival and Austin Film Festival. Austin Film's in the fall and South by's in the spring, and they're, they're at opposite times of year, which is good because they're two big festivals. But uh, Austin Film always brings in amazing writers and writer-producers, and they, and they continue to. It's pretty extraordinary. But, of course, everybody now wants to go to Austin. So. Of course. They also, I believe the Austin Film Festival has a uh, podcast submission a scripted for scripted audio. Mm-hmm. They have a category for that now as well, too. At least in the last couple of years, I saw that. You did four episodes on the series as Aaron Arkaway. You mentioned offline to me about an encounter you had with Jim uh, for the football nap scene. Can you tell that story? <laughs> yeah. So this is day one on the set, and I, I haven't met uh, Gandolfini at all. And um, we aren't, we're doing the football watching scene. It's the, I, think, I think that scene actually takes place after the, the uh, almost time for turkey sandwiches stuff. But uh, everybody's just watching football on Thanksgiving like everybody does. And uh, Jimmy's uh, stand-in is a big guy like him, about almost the same size like stand-ins usually are. And he, he's sitting on the sofa next to me, and I'm sitting next to him. And we're just they're just setting lights and doing the things they usually do. And I, um, 
I said, uh, you know, you don't like to throw a lot of ideas at David Chase. And uh, so I, but I did say to the director, Alan Coulter, I think was the director of that episode. And I said to Alan, I said, hey, I have an idea. What if I just kind of fell asleep with my head just like right on Jimmy's shoulder and like kind of drooling sort of thing? And he's like, well, I don't know if we'll like it, but let's try it. So <laughs> True tried it once with the stand-in, and it was pretty funny. And I was laying there basically with my eyes closed, trying to maintain my sleepiness. And they said, okay, let's shoot one, and uh, or let's do one more rehearsal. And so I just leaned my head over like this, getting ready to fall on the stand-in shoulder, and we shot the whole rehearsal. <laughs> when I opened my eyes at the end, Gandolfini was saying, hi, by the way, I'm Jimmy. And uh, I literally was just kind of crawling in his lap. And uh, it turned out to be good because I don't think he realized I didn't know he wasn't there. He just thought I had no fear. So your eyes were closed and you didn't know that they swapped yeah. the stand-in for, for yeah. James. I'm just sitting there, you know, I, the whole time I'm shooting this narcoleptic part, yeah. I'm pretty much, if we're if I'm supposed to be a shoot at the be- asleep at the beginning of the shot, I'm just laying there with, or sitting there with my eyes closed. And it's not an easy thing just to drop into in a second. Of course. Now, I had another advantage, which is, you know, when I, when we were, actually that first episode, everyone was saying, man, you seem so sleepy. How do you do it? Like, I don't know how you could possibly seem that sleepy. And I had the, the you know, the secret weapon, which is I figure I'm playing a narcoleptic. I'm in New York City. They're flying me to New York, and they're picking me up in a limo at the airport. I can go out with my buddies in New York, and I can stay out and party all night long and Smart. get zero sleep and go to the set and just barely be able to stay awake all through the day. And everybody would say, how do you seem so sleepy? I was like, yeah, just got to put in the work. <laughs> so in the frame, in the actual episode, we see what you're describing, and then uh, Tony sort of like pulls away like, and gives you like a, hey, yeah. that you're referring to that. That it, was actually, you that, didn't know he, it was him. When they filmed that. Well, well, that was in the first rehearsal I didn't know. And then we sort of went with a moderate, a moderated version of that. Okay, yeah. got it. Very cool. Inside stuff. Another thing you mentioned to me earlier was your on-set research for a film project uh, for your nonprofit, which we'll get into in a few minutes. So what was that like? You went there as an actor, but also it ended up being sort of like a reconnaissance mission for you? Well, <laughs> well I think, you know, I've been... I think uh, maybe even before The Sopranos, I'd written probably 100 hours of network and, and primetime cable television, HBO, Showtime, and the networks. And that's a lot of television to write. And I'd been in a lot of films, and I'd made done a lot of production with full crews, where, and my wife was a film and television producer. Uh, she ran a, a, a cowboy television network for Willie Nelson for a number of years in L.A. and had run Harry Anderson's production company out here. So we had a lot of experience in the business, but I wanted to shoot this documentary called Nobility, which is interviews with Nobel laureates, that I needed to shoot it all over the world, and I didn't have much budget. And um, so I just basically came up with this idea. And, of course, these days, you're going to think about how long ago that was. That's not quite 20 years, but it's getting close. These days, you can go out with an iPhone and you can shoot interviews like this. But back then, you're carrying heavy equipment. You need lights and you need sound. And and what's the lightest kind of a bunch of equipment you can go and then run and gun? And if you're in India and you're going to go shoot with street kids in the slums in India, you know, how can you pull that off solo? So I just kind of... You know, on the breaks, I would just talk to the sound guys and the lighting guys and the camera guys and talking about equipment and gear. And they'd all say, you can't do it. You can't do it because they're union guys that work in a big crew. But then they would say, you know, but if you had to do it and everybody had little ideas, it helped a lot. Sure. Um, Are you a fan of the show? I'm a huge fan of the show. Okay. Why are we 
talking about the show today. What makes it that good in your mind? Well, I think the easy answer would be because there's a lot of press. I don't think this is the correct answer, but the easy answer, because there's a lot of press about now there's going to be a Sopranos movie coming out, which people thought, well, once once Jimmy died, all that, all that opportunity was gone. But David Chase is a really brilliant man, and... Uh, I think he, you know, I don't know. I haven't seen the script. I have no inside knowledge other than what everybody else knows. But I think the idea of going back to Newark in the in the late '60s with everything that was happening then, and seeing this these characters when they were young is a brilliant idea. So there's one possibility. The other possibility was it was game changing TV, and there there wasn't really any, especially on HBO, but there really wasn't any must watch television at that time. We, we live more, you know, in the 50s, they talk about the golden age of television, three-camera television, and, and uh, it started with I Love Lucy. But we live in the golden age now, but The Sopranos, in many ways, I think, kicked off the golden age of television. And when you look at all these networks and all this content that's out there right now and how many writers and how many directors, how many producers, how many union crews are out there making product, um, some of it, I think, has happened because The Sopranos showed that you could target a, a specific sh- show to a wide audience and people would find it and love it. You didn't have to be Italian. You didn't have to be, you know, you didn't have to have loved Mario Puzo. You just, you just, it just had to be good. Yeah. And I, I think that in the long run, that's the answer. It was really great television. It, it holds up really well. It's a little heartbreaking to me, you know, I, the leftovers shot a year in New York, another great HBO series. You were on and, that as well, and, right? And when The Leftovers came to Texas to shoot the second season, I, I would cast in another kind of strange religious nut figure, um, Pillar Man, who's kind of the iconic image of the show, standing up on this pillar with a long beard and long hair, and a really fun part. And um, and I think that if we could have gotten you know a couple more years out of the leftovers, the audience was really finding it. It's an, another, I think, extraordinary show, and, and to to me, probably they're my top two favorite shows on television ever. Uh, I was in Friday Night Lights, the movie, and in the pilot, I was actually out of, in building schools in Kenya when they started shooting the series. I, there's one I missed, but. Uh, but, but there's another one, and, and um, there are a lot of other good series, obviously, but um, there is something about what HBO pulled off with The Sopranos, and then to a certain extent with those last two seasons of The Leftovers, it's really extraordinary. Yeah, the book, uh, The Leftovers, uh, was a really great book, too. It was just a great adaptation. I think I watched, I definitely watched season one, and then I kind of, it kind of dissipated. Uh, You'll have to go back and pick up, because season two is is pretty much mind-blown. Yeah. yeah. And season one is kind of grim because of the stoning and stuff. Right, and, you know, right. And uh, season two, it's much less grim and much more... Uh, that show is really about w- what happens, you know, it's so 2% of the world's population has disappeared. So the, the show is es- essentially, it's a pressure cooker. It's kind of like the Trump administration. What happens if you just put pressure on everybody and they're, they're emotionally tense and everybody's, you know, in the case of that, it's loss. Everyone has loss and that that's what the, the boiler is. And, and um, they did a really good job of getting in it, in, into it. Did you ever... Deadwood is another show that I think of that you would have been perfect for. Was is there any Deadwood story? I don't. Well, other than the fact that I wish I had, I wish I'd been in Deadwood, but um, 
I was in the Alamo, which John Lee Hancock directed for Disney, which get, didn't get the greatest reviews in the world, but I think mostly based on the idea that everybody thought Ron Howard was going to direct, and then when he didn't, they thought there was a problem with it or something. It's actually a wonderful movie. Billy Bob Thornton is just incredible yeah. in the movie, and that was the second movie in a row I'd made with Billy Bob, but... Uh, was in the Alamo, and Deadwood happened soon after that, but I just didn't. You know, I'm okay. a Texas actor. I, I, this stuff finds me. I'm not out in L.A. like running down parts. Right, right. I, I, I write. I'm still publishing books. I'm making movies. I'm building schools in Kenya, and if a part comes along, fabulous. And if I love not, it. I do something else. It's an, another uh, person who's a cre- not a creature of Hollywood, but a part of it is Richard Linklater, who lives in Austin as well. Um, you're still in contact with little Stephen, um, I read. How did that relationship start and grow stronger over time? Well, Stevie used to come... You know, I think I, I don't know if I, I haven't looked at all your episodes. So I don't know if Stevie's been on the on the he hasn't podcast been on, yet. He hasn't but, been on yet, but it, but it's in the works. He's a busy guy. I'm I'm going to tell him how much I, how much I loved it. Stevie would come to the set when he wasn't working, and all my scenes are at the house. And Stevie's not really his character, and he, we never had any scenes together. I never had scenes with Polly Walnuts, and you know, and. Um, but he would come to the set, and we met down there. And then the Sopranos was really good to me. They always invited me to come to Radio City to the premiere parties for the for the seasons for that season three, and then again. And when I came back um, later in the show, and and, Tony was in the hospital. Yeah, and Tony's in the hospital. <laughs> My Terry Shivo vigil T-shirt. <laughs> And uh, you go, girl. And uh, probably the most offensive line ever written in television. And. Uh, <laughs> um, but Stevie and and a lot of the cast at the at the premiere and the after parties at, at Radio City, we spent a lot of time talking and, I don't know, somehow or another managed to to become friends and stay friends. And, and uh, may, maybe Jimmy was helpful with that, Aida. I, I I'm not even sure I even remember because we were drinking. But uh, <laughs> later, I became involved with Stevie's. You know, he, has, he does some amazing music education work, and his Rock and Roll Forever Foundation is an incredible history of America. Um, through the history of American music. And it's an extraordinary program, and, and he came to South By, we supported that and have worked with him on that. And uh, and eventually we brought Stevie, uh, the Nobelli Project, our nonprofit. We have a gala every year in Austin called the Feed the Peace Awards. And we've honored Willie Nelson and Ben Harper and Chris Christopherson, Dan Rather. So one year, Stevie said, yeah, I'll come down. We, I, I, we, so we want to give you the Feed the Peace Award. We call it the Willie. We'll give you the Willie. And... Uh, he said, as long as I can meet Robert Rodriguez. Now, he and Robert are buddies now, which is really great. So Stevie came down, and, and we had a fantastic time in Austin. So we just had this kind of parallel between our two nonprofits. Very cool. You mentioned you're a fan. What are your thoughts on the ending? I don't know. I think I was, you know, I was like everybody else. I'm sure you've talked to cast members who were at the—I was not at, in Florida at the, at the cast— screening no one had seen the show and so they were with the audience all watching and they had no idea what was coming up and i think they were all from what everybody tells me pretty kind of dumbstruck and uh i think it was a kind of a brilliant ending that's that's my take on it you know and you can say yeah he's definitely dead but you know if jimmy had lived and david and jimmy had decided i think they had decided they i don't know this but my intuition is that they had decided not to do more and this let them not do more, but at the same time, if they wanted to do more, they could do more because yeah. we didn't see Jimmy go. Right. And 
Um, you know, losing Gandolfini is was just, I mean, I can't imagine for his family, but the guy had so many friends, so many people who loved him, so many fans for good reason. Yeah. You know, he, he was, a, it was a big bear of a guy with a big bear of a heart. Yeah. So who knows if, if, you know, we'd have come back and if the show had come back, you know, David would have put me in the show. I have no idea. I would say I'm a fairly, I'm a fairly minor character in the show. On the other hand, I'm the only one of Janice's boyfriends who didn't get axed. Great. I was just going to, I was hoping that you would say that on your own. Yeah. You know what? There's always something on the, in the pantheon of the bad, show. Bad luck dating Janice. Yeah. In addition to acting, you're also a writer, uh, which you mentioned with a pretty prolific output, screenplays, journalism, nine books, one of which was a New York Times bestseller about Willie Nelson. How did you form a relationship with Willie Nelson? You kind of started to touch on it. I met Willie. I was opening a show. <clears throat> this is a long time ago. This is probably in 1979. So this is 40 years ago. So if I, if I, I was opening for a show in Austin uh, at Auditorium Shores, like a big crowd. And, and Willie was hot. I don't know how many people we had. There were 25,000 people or something. And I was literally, I was on stage, I think, juggling fire or something before Willie's show. And uh, I finished my set and I walked off stage and the promoter said, you need to go back out and do 10 minutes because Willie's not ready yet. And they were crowd was already going, Willie, Willie, Willie. I said, I'm not going back out there again. They will kill me. He said, no, you got to go back out there. I said, walk out there with me. And I grabbed the promoter and we walked out. We were out there about 10 seconds and he said, okay, I get your point. And we walked back off and I said, where's Willie? And they said, he's on the bus and he won't come off the bus. And I said, oh, that's BS. And I went over and knocked on the door of Willie's bus, and he opened it in about the door in about five seconds and said, yeah. And I said, I think they're ready for you, Mr. Nelson. He said, I was wondering when they were going to come get me. And that's how Willie and I became friends. I had the balls to knock on the door of his bus. <laughs> Sometimes that's what you got to do. Yeah. But we we played golf for most of that 40 years, and we made a lot of, we made a bunch of TV movies together, and uh, and... Um, my wife produced and I wrote the Big Six O, his 60th birthday, uh, two-hour CBS special, which had Ray Charles and and Bonnie Raitt and Ringo Starr and everybody in the world, B.B. King. Just an amazing, amazing special. So we've done a lot of work together over the years. And then eventually we wrote that book, The, the Tao of Willie, or The Tao of Willie, or as Willie calls it, The Toe of Willie. <laughs> Is uh is he in Austin too? Is that he's you know he's in the he has his beautiful ranch Luck Luck Texas is his western movie town out there and that's where he hangs out when he's in town. I was out there uh, this weekend uh, for a uh, for a radio interview actually for for XM Sirius for his new album and and uh, he and Buddy Cannon and his daughter Paula told a lot of stories and he hung out you know he's eighty five years old he's out there taking pictures with everybody who came out to see the thing and it, it, it's amazing but he lives on that bus. And he spent some time in Austin. He has a beautiful house in Maui. So good air over there for his 85-year-old lungs. Pipes. So, yeah. The bus is where, what he, how he likes it, though. He does love the bus. Yeah. He, you know, the more he goes on the road, it's, I mean, it's a good lesson. You, you can't sit down. I think his music was on The Sopranos, but I, it's escaping me right now. I think what they used him for one of the... Outros. God, you would think I would know that, but I, I don't. I don't remember it. And yeah. I sat embarrassingly don't. And the listeners going to correct me on it as soon as they hear this. Um, I feel like he was definitely on the show. There um, should be uh, talking about the music. The music of The Sopranos, obviously, as you know, the sh whole show, the the music 
is just incredible. And um, one of my most favorite things about it. And there, you know, there's there should be a, a new series of albums of the, you know, there's a couple of great, there's the one, the first one is is particularly great as a bunch of the best songs with little sound bites. You have that one? Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember what it's called, but there, um, there'd be a market for more and, and those sound bites are great to put in there with those songs and uh, just, you know, anybody from the show who's, who's still, it's still fired up, but yeah, it's a beautiful bunch of music. A couple of your novels are being adapted for film, I read. Um, which ones and how far along in that process are they? Well, there was a novel called When Angels Sing, a Christmas novel that was published by Algonquin, and that was made into a feature with Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson and Connie Britton and, and uh, Harry Connick Jr. and kind of a who's who of Texas music it's called, yeah. a- called Angels Sing. The title changed because... You know, in the al- alphabetical play by uh, pay-per-view lists, if your movie starts with a W or an X or a Y or a Z, no one ever sees it because they don't get down the list. But if your movie starts with an A, <laughs> that was literally the, why they changed When Angels Sing to Angels Sing. A lot more people will find it. I don't know if that happened or not. But it's a really fun movie. Um, it increases the odds, n- just, if nothing else. It pops up on somebody's screen. Yeah. You know, so, I don't know. Um, the... Uh, I have a novel called All for Love that uh, that uh, the Traveling Picture Show Company in Los Angeles, which has produced quite a few films, um, TPSC has optioned that film and uh, have my, my script, and we're trying to get that thing moving ahead. And uh, have actually a, not a novel, another another screenplay with them that uh, I think is, is moving ahead pretty quickly, too. And um, there's others. <laughs> yeah. Your work doesn't end with acting and writing. You founded an education nonprofit called uh, the Nobility Project that you mentioned at the beginning um, that, among other things, releases films. What's the mission, and what kind of work are you doing? Well, we, we, we segued. So it started off, as I mentioned, filming interviews with these Nobel laureates. So I had Desmond Tutu as the first of those. So I had a pretty good, pretty good start. And yeah. it's, it's a, Nobility is a beautiful movie. And it did really well. It actually opened in theaters the same day as An Inconvenient Truth, which probably what didn't boost us a whole lot. Um, but And it came out on DVD the same day as An Inconvenient Truth. But it's a beautiful movie, and uh, it's still out there. Then we did One Piece at a Time, which looked at... The, at more Nobel laureates and other kind of brilliant thinkers looking at solutions to the world problems. And then the third one was called Building Hope. It's about a high school we built in Kenya in an area that had never had a high school. But what happened is we segued from making films. It's very hard to, you know, now we're in the Netflix years and Hulu and every, maybe there's a little more market for docs. But the last 10 years, it's been pretty hard to get people to see feature docs. So we started making short films about specific issues and stuff that's really inspiring. I mean, our website's nobility.org and there's tons of video on there and on my Facebook page, on Nobility Project Facebook page. But, but I think in many ways, Nobility is one of the most successful docs of the last 20 years because it, in, it at its heart, was the way we managed to, you know, we have a, we work with, we call our mission bridging gaps in education at home and abroad. So in Austin, we, we're sponsors or co-sponsors of a program called Cap City Kids that works with homeless kids. And it's amazing how many incredible numbers of homeless kids and kids in transitional houses and so many sofa surfers and stuff. I mean, thousands in Austin alone and whoever's out there listening, you know, check in your town and see who's providing services to homeless kids. They, these kids need help to stay in school. I mean, school's free, but you got to have shots. You got to have a haircut. You got to have clean clothes. You got to have 
tutors. You know, you may need a bus pass. Um, so we have quite a few programs, arts programs. We, we sponsor a film competition in Texas, a social impact film award in every high school in Texas. But uh, the biggest piece of it is in Kenya. We've built all or part of about 45 public schools in Kenya. Why Kenya? Why is it Kenya personal for you? Um, well, I mean, in some ways it goes back to Paris. So yeah, thinking about Notre Dame yesterday, and I have a lot of connections back to Notre Dame for some reason all through my life of performing in Europe. And my wife and I were went there on our honeymoon, and we after she beat breast cancer 10 years ago, we had it, we did a renewal of our vows, had a, med- a wedding ceremony in the Rose Garden at Notre Dame. And we filmed one of the interviews for Nobility there with Wangari Maathai, the first African woman to win the Nobel Prize. And she won the Nobel Peace Prize, and she was so busy she couldn't couldn't get back to Africa to film an interview with me. So she said, come to Paris. And we filmed an interview there. And while we were in Paris, she said, you need to go to Africa. I can see your hearts in this and meet the women of the Greenbelt Movement and go see this work, this tree planting work and restoration, environmental restoration work and empowerment of women. I went to Kenya and I went to school and that was it. And I was hooked. And I went to all these other countries. I shot the second film in 27 countries, but Kenya somehow just really spoke to me. And how many schools did you say? Well... We've built all of, we have five main high schools, and we pretty much, with the local community, now we're, these are partnerships with right, the local right, community. Right. It's, it's not just a charity, um, and they do a lot, and um, and the government runs these schools, they're public schools, but um, we've built all of four high schools and, and are significant partners in another really big girls boarding, boarding school, and they work at about another 40 primary schools where we've built classrooms and preschools and kitchens and dining halls. Last year, I think we built a dozen libraries. There's, there's some real scale to it. We're trying to work ourselves out of a job, though. It's not like the mission is to build 500 schools. The mission is to finish these partnerships everywhere we work and let these communities be stronger and take it over themselves, which is what they're doing. I read that you're a member of the Clinton Global Initiative. What does that mean, and how did that come about? Well, it doesn't mean anything anymore because it doesn't exist anymore. After his presidency, the CGI, they called it, was a, you know, it was a big, it was a little bit like a more a more egalitarian version of of this, well, there's a Skull Forum in London or Davos, you know. And, okay. But it was all kinds of, it was mixing world leaders and and program nonprofit leaders from around the world together to, to put ideas uh, on paper. I think their biggest successes were... Uh, were Haiti, where where Clinton, Bill Clinton was, uh, had a real passion to work with Dr. Paul Farmer down there and do a lot of work in Haiti. And I was one of the early people into Haiti after the earthquake and filming and documenting, oh, you were there. documenting damage in schools right after the earthquake. And that was a, a little bit of a harrowing experience. But, um, um, but it was for me. It was just a learning experience. I just got to go meet a lot of brilliant people, and and a lot of them in the education side. And um, that we're we're more involved at this point. That doesn't exist anymore. But we are uh, continuing members of the Global Campaign for Education, which is a a global group of people that, with an office in Washington D.C. that are always doing research and learning and sharing ideas and lobbying. You know, we get, there's a lot of value in education, you know, and people, it's, you know, everybody worries about spending government resources on foreign aid or domestically. But in my opinion, we spend way too much money on the military, most of which we have no idea where it goes. And we spend way too little money on education. And, and you can't expect the problems of the world to get better unless every kid in every country has a, 
a decent education, and we're we're missing that we're missing that mark here, uh, just like we are in, in a lot of the developing countries are as well. So, thanks for saying that, and and you couldn't agree with you more. What's on your plate right now? What are you working on? Um, you're in, you're obviously we're in LA. You came in, got a screenplay deal in the works that I hope will happen. Um, uh, just had a meeting talking about a, a, a television special. It was a really fun idea that I can't talk about, but it was a fun idea. And um, I have finished my big book club. Last year I did this, Turk Pipkin's Book of the Every Other Month Club, which was really insane. I published six books in a year. You published? I published six in a year. And it was a, it was a Indiegogo crowdfunded campaign. And um, So it, people it, sign up. People signed up, and then every two months you got a new book. That you and, wrote. Yeah, and three of them were novels. I, I thought they all came out great. One of them is that book, All for Love, that I sold the movie rights to, and I it hadn't I hadn't sold the the book rights. And I thought, well, I want to get the book to come out before the movie comes out, and I'll just give it a final rewrite and a copy edit, and and it'll be book number one. It ended up being, I think, book number four. Um, but how'd was, you come up with this idea? Well, I, I came up with this idea. When Angels Sing, that Christmas book for Algonquin was a book of the month selection back in the days when there was a book, you know, and they sent you a little card every month and the book would arrive. And it was a book of the month club selection. And I was thinking, well, I've got a, two books that are substantially done. Nobody wants, no publisher wants two books from an author in a year. And I had a couple others I was interested in doing. And I had this kid's book. And, uh, so I thought, well, I wonder if I could come up with 12 and I could do the book of the month club, Turk's book of the month club. And I went, oh, that's insane. Then the every other month hit me, and I went, oh, that's even better. That's doable. So it was fun. The, I, the, one of the ones I love, I love them all, but Mol, the Moleskine mystery is, if anybody is, likes Moleskine, you know, Moleskine are those, those blank notebooks, yeah. the line notebooks that you write in with the blue, the blue lines in them. And the Moleskine mystery is a novel set in New Orleans. I think it really, it's really a love story and a mystery. I think it's a really beautiful book, but it's handwritten. When you get your copy, it's handwritten in a Moleskine. So wow. I had to, I had to figure out Copy. how to, I had to, well, it's, it's, you know, it's a font, but I had to find a designer who could find a font and create a font that would be legible. You know, I don't care how good your handwriting is. No one wants to read, yeah. you know, 140 pages of someone's handwriting. So Do you it, write long form? I can, but I, I, I tend to print, write, scribble, computer. I write, I walk and I and I dictate into my phone. I, any any way you can get it down. If you write, you just write any way you can. But um, it's really a beautiful book. It looks like a moleskin, and you open it up, and it's it's all written. And the story of it being written in blue is part of the story of the novel. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, yeah very cool. Are, are you in partnership with Moleskin? No, I'm not. But I I misspell the name Moleskin. So <laughs> so far so good. <laughs> off to a good start. Um, are you reading anything good at the moment? Um, I'm reading Tom Hanks typewriter stories that okay. is, and I'm reading a bunch of stuff. I'm, I'm making a, a documentary, a little bit longer documentary, uh, um, probably 30, 35 minute long. So it's not quite a feature, but, uh, on <clears throat> animal migration. So, and it's, it, it, which is a way to look at environmental issues over a really long geographic range. So it looks at monarch butterflies in North America, at the Pacific gray whales, which go from Baja, Mexico, up to the Arctic all along the West coast. And in Africa at, Flamingos, which is a really interesting story over there, and, uh, and potentially a threatened animal, and the Great Migration over there, the the wildebeest and the, uh, that everybody knows about, and the zebras. And so there's these four migrations. So I've been filming this thing all over the world, and um, 
I'm down to editing and and recording voices voiceovers and and so I'm I've read so many books about flamingos and whales and butterflies and zebras and and I have migration books coming out of my ears. Interesting. I'm thinking when you're as you're describing this, I'm thinking about Tony Soprano in the pilot. He's reading a book about birds. And he's, he's rifling through it in the car, in the kitchen, because of those ducks. Oh, the ducks are a really amazing thing <laughs> in, the, in The Sopranos. Well, the nice thing about that film is the footage, you know, the monarch butterfly footage. And, you know, you get in the mountains of Mexico where their winter roost is. And, you know, I have shots with millions of butterflies in them. It's, it's really extraordinary. But that's, that sucks up a lot of my reading time. Okay. And it's funny when you're right. You don't have a lot as much time to read as you think you would. No, it's true. Very true. Uh, any any walk of life, any work that you do that you're really passionate about, like reading kind of goes to the wayside unless you find time for it. Um, what music have you been listening to recently? Have you listened to any, are you listening to anything good and what kind of music in general do you like? You know, I listen to, not exclusively, but I do listen to a lot of Texas music. Okay. We're, we're, I'm friends from, from the 70s, like with Willie and with Joe Ely and with Ray Wiley Hubbard and the Flatlanders, Butch and Jimmy, and, and Lyle Lovett used to be my opening act. That's how old I am. Okay. And Robert Earl Keen, same thing. Old, old friends and uh, who I think all still make amazing music. And that's not even just, that's a drop of the bucket in Austin. And... Uh, so I, I listen to a lot of music from Texas. Um, I listen to a lot of—I tend to listen to a lot of African music because of these films I make, and I like it. And um, and uh, is it vocal or instrumental? Both. Okay. Yeah. Um, the um, and what am I, what else am I listening to now? Well, that goes back to the same thing. This thing that we did at, at Luck Texas uh, that Willie did on Saturday was playing his next album that's coming up, and. Uh, um, called Ride Me Back Home is the name of his new album that comes out in June. But the Willie's album is the My Way. He won a Grammy for My Way. This How many albums does classics. he have? Can you say? Like, do you know off the top of your head? It, well, it, it, you know, studio albums, it's 250. And, but there's hundreds of others. And um, the number of albums is just extraordinary. He's written 5,000 songs. Wow. Is that a, there's, is that gotta, it's gotta be some kind of a record. I think the main record would either be the songs or the fact that he smoked more marijuana than anybody who ever lived. <laughs> so, I mean, Bob Marley didn't even, he was, you know, he didn't live long enough to. Bob to, Marley was a lightweight, is yeah, what you're to, saying. To, well, I don't, I don't think in his life, but Willie's been smoking for a very long time. Yeah. And, uh, and you keep seeing these stories where Snoop Dogg and everybody else says, Willie put me under the table. That's so. amazing. <laughs> so Mike, you know, Mike Tyson that, has a podcast now where it's called Hot Box, where you get into a room like what we're in and you basically smoke with Mike Tyson. And part of the conceit is to see who can outlast the other. Um, and I'm thinking Willie Nelson. Willie Nelson's got to go on that podcast. He probably would win. Um, yeah, that's, that's a brilliant <laughs> idea. Um, where can listeners find you online? Um, the Nobility Project is Nobility, like N-O-B-E-L, like Nobel Laureate, I-T-Y, nobility.org. Um, same thing, Nobility Project has a Facebook page, which has a, a lot of people who follow that. Um, and I, uh, turkpipkin.com and Facebook slash turkpipkin. It's all, you know, Twitter, it's all just turkpipkin. And um, I'm easy to find and... and um, Easy to spot, too. Follow, follow me on Facebook. Don't send me a friend request because if anybody who pays attention to that kind of thing knows Facebook only lets you have 5,000 friends. And then people send you these requests, so you don't have time to reply to each one and say, I'm sorry, I'm not ignoring you. But Yeah. yeah. Turk, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for being a part of this. Oh, it's, it's been great fun.